This is Next Radio 2017, a look back at the Radio Ideas Conference. I'm James Cridland, and every year my friend Matt Deegan and I put on a conference for radio people in central London. You can learn more and buy tickets at next.radio. In this half hour, why radio sucks for some people, some Tony Blackburn and some Annie Mack. Steve Wilson Beals looks after video for Global, the largest commercial radio company in the UK. And he explained why he wasn't a fan of taking viral videos and reusing them. We're all now looking closer at videos that you can source through, um, through social media. Uh, publishers are building up the, 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 the team size of their social video uh, production unit. So more and more people, more and more publishers out there looking at uh, what they can get uh, ahead of the crowd. And this creates a, a, an issue. Now, you may have seen this, I'm sure many people in the room have seen the, the Irish family trying to capture the bat in their, in their kitchen. Let's just have a quick look at that. Catch him! Catch him, Derry! Derry, catch him! There's a bat! Get 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 Oh. It's an absolutely brilliant clip, and obviously we, we, uh, uh, we covered it across the global brands, but so did, uh, so did everyone else. In fact, I think when I looked at Google Trends, I think that big peak is, it pretty much broke Google in the UK and, and Ireland for that initial week of the September the 7th, I think it was. Now, that, that creates uh, an issue because effectively what we've got there by sourcing that clip is that we've got this, we've got a thumb-stopping moment there. And the problem in this case is that everyone's doing the same thing, everyone's got the same clip. The issue of that is basically uh, users can't remember where, they, where they're seeing the content from. And in a recent uh, report from the Reuters Institute, it showed that if uh, users go to your website directly, you hope because they will remember the content there. But most of users are accessing your site through search and social and so they, they, just, they just can't remember where, where, you, where, where that content is, is coming from. So one way, obviously, to address that is, is uh, put very strong branding on your social clips. Um, <clears throat> but really, at the end of the day, it's around investing in original storytelling, uh, really thinking about your construction of uh, videos. You know, luckily for us in the, in the radio industry, you know, there's been some fantastic work done in the podcast industry. Um, and you can, a lot of these podcasts over the last year have now been translated into TV shows for, uh, for the likes of Amazon and Netflix. Steve Wilson-Beals from Global. The rise of podcasting is well known, but some of that rise comes from unofficial fan podcasts. Alex Aidy from Audioboom explained why. People who are fan podcasting don't necessarily have to toe a certain party line, whereas official podcasts or official media or kind of a more mainstream media perspective will have to toe a certain line and won't have um, the capability to be independent. I think if you're critical and you can engage in debate and you can argue with certain points or argue with certain things, I think people are much more likely to tap into that. And I think we're also more likely to listen to people that we might agree with on certain topics. If something's quite close to your heart, I think that's probably something that, that rings true there. And this next point, I think, follows on from that. Everyone's a pundit nowadays, or everyone can be. We've got the tools at our disposal to broadcast our voice over so many mediums, and I think that's really tapped in with podcasting. We've got so many fan Twitter accounts or YouTube TV accounts like Arsenal Fan TV, and you can tap into that, and I think podcasting's really given people a voice to do that too. 
And I think the continuation of fanzine culture taps into that too. So fanzines becoming very popular 20, 30, 40 years ago. Sorts of reactions football fans against very negative perceptions of football fans in the media. And I think that sort of continued that sort of ethos of building a community of fans around that. I think that as we've gone more digital and we've moved away from a more kind of analogue world, I think naturally we'd find a new capability of doing that. We found that some of our fan podcasts coexist with fanzines, so I'm not, not entirely sure that they'll exist without each other, but it's certainly something to consider going forward. And I think the distribution and reach of podcasting is really helpful. Again, it's a very cost-effective way of getting your message out to a lot of people, and it's replaced more costly mediums like fanzines and maybe like running a website if, if you're thinking about hosting costs. I think the three main things that I would take away from this, though, is the independence of fan podcasting, not being beholden to anyone else's opinions, the ease of which you can get your message out there, and again, that word choice. I think choice is really important. We can choose exactly how we consume our media and who we consume it from nowadays, and I think that's really, really tapped into why fan podcasts are so popular. Alex Aidy from Audio Boom. This is Next Radio 2017, a look back at the Radio Ideas Conference. From Dublin, Nails Mahoney is a radio coach, not a radio consultant. Because in his words... I hate to say this to any uh, programme directors, content controllers or consultants that might be here right now, but presenters don't like consultants. <laughs> a consultant walks into the radio station for the week. Presenters want to put the head down. Don't look at me, don't talk to me, don't go near me. I just want to do my thing and get on with my life, for Christ's sakes. If you're the breakfast show, forget about it. They're, they're on your case for the week. Everybody else, the happy one, there's an Australian guy I worked with. He said, oh, now, mate, the insultants are coming in. The insultants are coming in, he called them. And the reason he'd say that is because to him, the perception was a consultant comes in, tells me what to do, then pisses off back to wherever they need to go to, and then tells other people what they need to do. I don't need that. So I thought to myself, I remember what I was, I mean, I've been in radio 30 years, and anybody that's been in that long, you've been hired, you've been fired, you've been screwed around, you've had great times, you've had all that stuff. So you bring all that with you into what you do. And I coach presenters on their own. I also coach in radio stations. The presenters I coach, first of all, is this guy. Look at this little face on him. He's so thrilled. He's been in radio about a year, and everything's great. To him, radio is the greatest thing in the world. I love radio. I get paid to talk on the radio and play my favorite songs. It's amazing. I get to talk to this guy, and then I get to talk to this guy. This guy has been in radio 20, 25 years. Do you remember Atlantic 252, if you're from the UK? Do you remember that station? If you're in the UK in the 90s, you'll... You know Atlantic. I worked in Atlantic for a couple of years. I'm, I remember in Atlantic 252, at the time, people said, what's the deal with that bloody radio station? You've got 15 songs, and you've got these stupid names like Dusty Rhodes and Sandy Beach and Nails Mahoney. What's that all about? Now people go, oh, do you remember Atlantic? Hey, oh, that was great, wasn't it? This guy's still living in Atlantic 252 land. He was about 25 years in the business, right? He started off local radio, loved it, moved on, maybe went up to a bigger market, maybe dipped his toe into national radio. And then about a year ago, boom, the door closed. And he doesn't know why. He has no idea what happened to him. He says, this business, man, it's not the same as it used to be. This used to be fun. We used to go in, oh, we'd be you know, smoking doobies in the studio, we'd have our feet up, we'd be in our, our ba baseball caps on. Oh, man, it's all corporate now and it's crap. And the reason he says that is because to him, radio sucks. To him, the industry isn't like it used to be, because that's his perception of it. Radio doesn't suck. Radio is an industry, and indi industries don't suck. Industry, radio industry are groups. Groups are radio stations. Radio stations are run by people. And people generally don't suck. 
Even the ones you think suck, don't suck. They think they're great, they're just doing what they need to do. They don't suck. But when you've been screwed around, you have a choice. You can either say to yourself, it was better back in the old days, or you can say to yourself, what do I do here? This guy, all right, 25 years, what does he do? Because it's in his DNA, isn't it? If radio's in your DNA, if it's in your bones, there's nothing you can do except radio. Or is there, I wonder? Or is there, I wonder? The full speech is on the Next Radio website, but it might be something to do with attitude. Now, a bad attitude is something that BBC Radio 1 has never suffered from. And Sam Bailey and Joe Harland came to preview the then-upcoming BBC Radio 1 Vintage Radio Station, which was a pop-up station from the BBC celebrating the station's 50th birthday. Not every moment will be quite that slick. We have a new entry at... Number 26. From Duran Duran. Straight in, the Radio 1 Top 40, position number 26. That's a new entry, Duran Duran and another called Planet Earth. Radio 1, Thank you very much for a couple of people who rang up and I didn't realise that I said it, but I mispronounced the name. I said Duran Duran and Planet Earth at number 26, when of course it should be, as everybody knows, Duran Duran. When you're doing a, a tight scheduled process, sometimes you mispronounce things. I do, I do apologise. None of us are too big to apologise. Sorry about that. Duran Duran, of course. Thank you very much for taking the trouble. Uh, meanwhile... None of us are too big to apologise. Tony Blackburn and Duran Duran, one of a handful of top 40 bloopers, which will feature in an hour called The Best of the Official Chart. And yes, it will be on Sunday night, ending at 7pm. And yes, it will segue straight into to Annie Nightingale's request show. Hi. Sam Bailey with a bit of Tony Blackburn. Up soon we go up to date with Annie Mack. But it's not every day that you hear from an ex-convict, but that's who we were treated to at Next Radio 2017. Carl Catamull gave a strong talk about his time in prison and his love of NPR. No, not that NPR. Here's a picture of me on the landing of HMP Pentonville. It's 10 minutes up the road from here, and it's a prison that resembles a war zone in the middle of a posh North London suburb. Since I was released, I've done a lot of broadcast. I've done BBC Radio 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 and 6. But most proudly, I've done a lot of national prison radio. I'm also a published author. This book, HMP, A Survival Guide. It's like a lonely planet for British jails. Will Self described it as essential reading. In fact, he used polysyllabic words from the 17th century, but um, essential reading is the basic translation. <laughs> anyway, big up Will. I've got copies here. It's four pounds, it's 28 pages, and 100% it will radically change your understanding of British prisons. I'm a radio fanatic also. My insomniac dad listened to World Service all night, while my insomniac teenage self listened to pirate radio all night. During my time behind bars, radio was my best friend. NPR, that stands for National Prison Radio, is a big deal behind bars. A record 85,000 people are currently in prison, and 81,000 of them have access to NPR. 72% of prisoners listen regularly, and the average listening time is nearly 12 hours per week. Prison feels like a desperate desert island, and radio lets you know humanity is still out there for you. Put it like this, PRA received 6,500 letters last year, all handwritten. It's a powerful watch, and you'll find the video in full and more details about the Next Radio conference on our website, next.radio. Next.
This is Next Radio 2017, a look back at the Radio Ideas Conference. I'm James Cridland. BBC Radio 1's Annie Mack was interviewed at Next Radio by Matt Deegan, who started asking why, when she was at Queen's University in Dublin, why she got interested in radio in the first place. I made a very kind of rudimentary decision in my final year in Queen's um, that I wanted to do radio based on the fact that you get to talk a lot and you get to play music. Literally that simple. Um, Because I was really into DJing at the time, I just bought my first set of decks and was practising mixing very badly in my uh, rented accommodation and going clubbing and, yeah, just kind of felt quite inspired musically and wanted to try and find a way to kind of further my education. But so had you done much, have you done student radio or... Any? Nothing, there was no radio station okay. in Queen's, which is a shame, I would have really liked to do it. But So I chose a course in Farnborough, in Farnborough College of Technology, because it seemed to be very practical. It had a studio, you could go in and learn how to make a news bulletin and make an ad and all that. So I went over there and got stuck into kind of learning radio and uh, loved it. Absolutely loved it and started sending emails to people. Emma B, uh, Eddie Temple Morris at XFM. So started kind of reaching out to people. And uh, my brother was in a band living in London at the time and I went to go and live with them afterwards. And um, he was signed to V2, which is Richard Branson's old Mm. record label. And I managed to get work experience in his label through him. And was there for two weeks and a job came up to work in a, a radio plugging company, which I then went to work in and uh, kind of learnt a lot there, actually, in terms of who did what show, who produced what show, what show played what. And so when, so when you're in Farnborough and you wanted to, to do radio, yeah. what, having been exposed to that, did you think actually this is what I want to do, or oh, I didn't realise that I'm, I'm more like this person, I'm gonna, I want to go and do this. It was Marianne Hobbs, who we just saw, that made me think I could be a radio DJ. Having not been exposed to Radio 1 in the south of Ireland, obviously, because mm. we don't get the BBC radio there, it was when I went to Belfast that I discovered Radio 1 and listened to it religiously. And Marianne Hobbs' show was like nothing I'd ever heard before because it was completely eclectic and... You know, it had a really loose kind of overall concept, I guess. Uh, It was vaguely electronic, but that was the only constraints on the music that she played. Mm. I just remember loving it and listening to it every night and recording it on my mini disc player. (laughs) Um, Have you still got a stack of mini discs at home? Yes, I do. In a shoebox. I'm like, this is my history. (laughs) Uh, All my demos and stuff. (laughs) Yeah, so her, her listening to her was a big kind of epiphany moment for me. Also, Emma B and Sarah Cox used to do a show on Sunday nights on Radio 1, which was them just talking a lot. And I remember thinking that it sounded really fun. Uh, so that was another thing that I, I really liked, which is why I emailed Emma B, actually. So, yeah, it was, it was listening to women, listening to women play good music and realising, oh, maybe I'm, I could do that. So you're doing work experience in, in plugging company, you're starting to work at a plugging yeah. company. Uh, was that sort of a, a taking the, the cloth off, the secrecy of how it all, how it all works, yeah. how it all is hooked up? I was putting things in envelopes and then I was posting those envelopes in post boxes in the BBC stations. I was learning about who, how a production team worked, what made up of a normal production team for a specialist music show at Radio 1 or something. I learnt a lot of names, I got familiar with a lot of names. And then when I was there in that time, I started working for um, 
SBN, Student Broadcast mm. Network. I had So a, for, for people who don't know, yeah. SBN used to provide a kind of sustaining service overnight to student radio stations. Yeah, so I, I produced the hip-hop show, I presented the Saturday and Sunday morning, the, the weekend breakfast show, mm. and then I had my own... Um, in session with Annie McManus, not, not the most catchy name of all time, uh, where I would go and record bands uh, playing live. Again, I had no idea how to record a band, I just winged it, and we'd put them out on our show. And uh, that happened in Camden, in Primrose mm. Hill, so in my lunch times at this plugging place, I would be going over there and interviewing bands upstairs at the Barfly and just being really busy. So my boss at the time, who is an incredible woman, she kind of saw what I wanted to do and she had a very close relationship with a guy called Reese Hughes at Radio mm. 1 and she spoke to him and uh, eventually he agreed to see me and uh, I'd seen kind of three or four different execs at that point okay. um, so at this point to present or to work well, this there, is the or... problem because I wanted to produce and I wanted well ultimately I wanted to present but right. I would have been very... was, was production just an excuse to then go on air I think I would have been really happy to produce but I wanted to push to present. Okay. It's a very, it's, it's a tough problem when you're yeah. going to see someone like mm. that because they're like, well, do you really want to work here or do you just want to do your own show? Because that is the big challenge, isn't mm. it? I, mean, I think lots of new DJs say, oh, you know, should I work there first? Because yeah. yeah. the general rule seems to be, oh, no, no, concentrate on being a presenter. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily work for you. So you met Reese. I met Reese. Mm. I'd met a few people before then and um, hadn't really got the shoe in. And then Reese eventually called me uh, a few weeks later when someone was ill and I stepped in. I, I did do a whole year working for Net FM as well. I've right. forgotten that. That was some in London. And internet radio, when internet radio was the thing, like mm. the new thing, and we used to build, actually, you know, the foresight was, was on point. We used to build pages, like a very, again, basic web pages to go with, with every song that we played. Okay. We'd have to like write three facts and like put up a photo of, of every artist and that would flash up on the page as you played a song. But it was aimed at kind of middle-aged guys, um, you know, and we made shows about cars and uh, played a lot of Crowded House. <laughs> it's very, I mean, they generalised badly in terms of the music that they played. Uh, so bits of, so or bits of depping on production, so bits of freelance production. Yeah, I, uh, I produced my own yeah. show and presented that and I did a lot of production as well I mean I produced stuff for SBN so mm. I, with Radio 1 I just wanted to get in mm. I just wanted to get in that door and uh, I got in luckily to Steve Lamack's show and he was doing across the week Monday to Thursday and they had two producers and two assistant producers because on Monday nights they had a long show four hour show so I, I kind of after a couple of weeks at Radio 1 a job came up and I managed to get a job of a BA a broadcast mm. assistant on that show um, and it was from then then that I well, I was too scared to tell anyone that I was a presenter that was the problem okay so it was a secret it was still a secret I was still doing my shows for um, for, for, for SBN and I was still doing the odd thing but I was too scared to tell anyone in case they thought that I didn't want to be there mm. otherwise uh, and it actually happened I, we were doing a board meeting uh, in the boardroom and Mike Davies the other uh, uh, BA who went on to present the punk show mm. Uh, googled my name on the keyboard of this big screen in front of us all and, and my name came up like in session with Annie Mount with this band with this band and they were like what are these? Was that on purpose to, to no, expose he, you? No it wasn't I think he was just trying to take the you know try <laughs> yeah. to find something bad mm. but um, unfortunately well, well fortunately it was it was all the radio so shows. that was it so secrets out secrets out Hannah Brown my producer at the time saw that and you know I guess as a producer you can do what you want with that news but mm. she was uh, she was incredibly supportive and kind of 
acknowledged it with me and um, then went on to kind of, there was a few spots. Namone was ill at Glastonbury, so I had to step in and do the entertainment news, just little things like that. There was a late night show called One World, which, which did global music. They needed a presenter and they chose me to present, but not as Annie Mac or Annie McManus, just as a voice, like a okay. nameless presenter. Right. And then Joe Harland, who you just saw, he was my editor at the time, so my exec. So he was kind of overseeing those shows. And he gave me one of the best bits of advice I've ever had, actually, which was make a pilot, but make a pilot of you presenting the show that you want to present. So make it easy for the people that are going to give you the job so mm. they know how you are going to sound in that place. Um, and I did that. Because and, and that's quite brave, because if there isn't necessarily a slot for it, you, there's a bit of worry there that, oh, yeah. God, do they even want this? Like yeah. me? Luckily, I had, the, I had a dream show at Radio 1 that I listened to religiously and loved, which was The Breeze Block, mm. Marianne Hobbs's show. So I did a pilot for that. And um, then... I got the call a while later saying that they they wanted a, a dep and I dept twice for that show and then I got given a, a Thursday night radio show, a dance show that happened just before John Peel's show. And at that point did you think that's it, I've done it? Or yes. do you think this is the I, I, journey? I was happy. I was, I was like... Objective achieved? Yeah. You know, I, I, I had a goal to, to, to be a Radio 1 DJ, and I was. And so were you still doing produ- uh, Radio 1 production at this well, point Well, I was also well. kind of lost, because I worked full-time in production, and mm. then I left when that happened, mm. because I was now a Radio 1 DJ, and it was I couldn't really do both. So I left and was, like, lost. and no idea what to do. took up swimming, and it was just <laughs> like, ugh... Um, so it took me a while to kind of fill that role and fill my time being a freelance DJ and obviously started a DJ career properly then mm. and started travelling. And So it's an interesting bit about the, that shift from production to presenting. What did you think of Radio 1 presenters when you merely was a BA or, or a producer? And has any of that view shifted as your role has shifted? Well, I think having that experience, kind of two years working behind the scenes, is probably the best thing that ever happened to me as a presenter is knowing how a radio show works, knowing how a radio team should work, knowing everyone's roles and how they should be played and how a radio team can work together well. Um, It's made me appreciate what what the people who work on my show have to do to get the show together and to get it over the line. Um, And it's, it's, yeah, made me have a much better perspective of of the show in general. Um, but I do, think, I do think it's a really hard uh, transition to make. Mm. I mean, people have, have done it, right? Yeah. You know, a lot, a lot of successful presenters started out in production. And it still happens. Like, there's a, a, a girl called Jam Supernova, a one mm. extra, who's so good, who started out being a, an AP just a couple of years ago. So, you know, it's happening a lot, but it, it's a hard one. It's a hard transition. So you, you made that transition, so you've got what, a weekly show. Yeah. And now it's like, oh, God, I'm, I'm DJ now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you start doing more club DJing and growing that. Mm -hmm. Was that new as well or has that always been bubbling under at the same time? I mean, I've been DJing since I was kind of 19, 20 Mm. at house parties for my own enjoyment. Um, But when I got the Radio 1 show, it was quite remarkable how when you have that kind of name behind you and when you have a weekly, like, product as such Mm. in terms of, like, your mixes and people can hear you, people start calling. So I was really thrown in at the deep end and had to learn really quickly how to DJ in front of people. My boyfriend at the time used to sit behind me and be like, Spy 
all, they're all looking at you. And I'd be like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I've got a mix. And I used to bring like a piece of paper with exactly what I was going to play in what order in front of me, which kind of defeats the purpose of being like a, a DJ to a live crowd. But yeah, I, I, got, I got a bit braver over time. And that became, has become quite a big part of your, your life. Mm. I mean, Annie Mac Presents is a brand in itself that's a, yeah. that's a part of you. And what, what was that trend, transition like? Was that, is that a business thing you wanted to achieve or something you wanted it was, to do? It was kind of, you know, as, as you mentioned, it was having one show a week. It's mm. two, three hours a week is not a lot of time. Yeah, it can take you a couple of days to get the music together, to get the show together. But I had time and I wanted to just keep doing things and keep challenging myself and keep myself interested I guess so AMP was born of that and it grew a lot and became a, a kind of a big thing and it still is we do festivals um, we you know we do compilations every year we do we do a lot of stuff and I really enjoy it and I feel like it's really helped in terms of you know I think Radio 1 like to see their DJs doing things out of Radio mm. 1 as well it's another very good piece of advice I got which was you know don't put all your eggs in one basket you know it's good to have your own stuff going on beyond the BBC and I'm really glad I do so that then turned into uh, more evening shows uh, yeah and then um, you took over the early evening show what was Zane Lowe's show. show yeah that's quite a that was quite a, a big show for the network yeah um, he went, obviously went off to do something else at Beats did you want to take on that show was it like that's where I want to be or was it like I don't know it, were you worried about putting your own position into something which had such a connection I, for a long time when I started at Radio 1, I think I wanted to do the mid-morning show. It was that kind of Joe Wiley slot that I thought would be the perfect slot for me. And then I wanted to do, the, when, when, um, when John passed, I thought maybe that show would have been a good show yeah. in terms of like a late night eclectic show. And Philly Tagger and Alice Levine got yeah. that. And I remember being sad and being like, God, man, I would have loved that show. And then I got the Sunday show, which was uh, something that I kind of asked Reese about, because me and Grimmy used to do a Sunday mm. evening show. And when Grimmy got the breakfast show, I said to Reese, can you let me do my thing with this Sunday slot? And he uh, really gave me a lot of freedom. And so I had the Friday night and the Sunday night, and I absolutely loved both those shows, because both of those had the rare thing and the, and the kind of lucky thing on a daily radio station of being able to represent the exact mood that the audience are in at the time. Yeah. So Friday show, obviously, you have this feeling of kind of joy, you finish work, it's the weekend, it's up, it's uplifting, it's happy. Sunday was, we called it the musical hot water bottle, which is possibly the worst name for a radio show <laughs> ever. And none of the American also artists named, knew what I was talking also about. All show names are dreadful and should be yeah. banned. Yeah. But it did kind of explain it a little bit about what it was supposed to be for, this kind of warm around the edges uh, music, kind of really chilled, you know, uh, really relaxed. And people loved that. It felt like a kind of a cult-esque show, uh, and I loved doing it. Um, so I was happy with my lot. And, you know, Zane Show, I worked on that for uh, well over... Well, I worked on that slot for, yeah, nearly two years. And I loved that. But I never thought for a second that it would be up for grabs. Mm. I thought Zane, you know, he is a world-class presenter. I didn't think he'd ever leave, and I didn't think Radio 1 would ever let go of him. Mm. So when I got the call, I was absolutely shocked. But obviously, you know, completely delighted, because all I'd ever wanted was a daily radio show. Mm. And getting to keep the Friday on top, which obviously I'd, you know, I'd worked so hard to build up stuff around that, um, was a bonus. So I was, yeah, I, I, I shed a tear and then I was terrified. 
Um, and I remember going in on Zayn's last show, and he had this he had this hashtag on the last day where everybody was like. Bono from U2 sending a pint of Guinness, you know, Chris Martin, hashtag thank you Zane, and I was just like, like he knows everybody, he's got these relationships, and, and, yeah, and it was terrifying, but um, the first thing I learnt after a couple of weeks was that everybody is new at some point, yes. and if you do any job for 12 years, you know, you're going to be hopefully adept, mm. and you're going to have relationships that you build up, and um, I guess the the fear, you know, dissipated once I got into the rhythm of it. Mm. Yeah. When did it stop, in your own mind, stop being Zane's show and became your show? Uh, I'd say it probably took about six months. Mm. Yeah, I still called it Zane's show at the start for ages. So I got corrected a lot. Annie Mack, rounding off a look back at Next Radio 2017, the Radio Ideas Conference. It's every year in central London, and if you'd like to come this year, you'll find lots of information and videos from every year of Next Radio at the Next Radio website. The address for that is next.radio. You can also join our mailing list so we can keep in touch. And finally, if you use Twitter, well, so do we. We're called This Is Next Radio. All one word, This Is Next Radio. I'm James Cridlin. Thank you to Broadcast Bionics for their support, and thank you to you for being with me over the last hour. And until next time, keep listening. Thank you.